Welcome to the Asia Climate Finance Podcast, where our host and his guest discuss and evaluate climate business and climate finance issues and trends. Please support us by liking and subscribing to the podcast. Also, please note the disclaimers at the end of the show. Here is your host, investor analyst and author, Joseph Jacobelli. Hi there, and a very, very warm welcome to the 40th episode of the Asia Climate Finance Podcast. Our guest today is Mike Thomas. Mike heads the Lantau Group, a Hong Kong-based consultancy, and he is one of the leading energy economics thinkers in the Asia-Pacific region. As it is the beginning of the year, Mike evaluates a small sample of the many developments in the region's climate finance and business in 2023. He also shares a few thoughts on 2024 and beyond. We discuss some specific markets, including Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, and China. And also, we examine some of the major themes, such as the ASEAN grid, offshore wind, and grid capacity. Mike truly offers some unique perspectives, thanks to his vast experience and extensive work with corporates, governments, and financial institutions. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for uh, uh, you know your time. I know you're traveling around and uh, was able to catch you in between uh, trips. So very, very thankful for your time. How's, uh, how's the weather in Manila? Oh, thanks, Joseph. It's been great. It's been sunny and, uh, and not, not too hot. Quite quite lovely. I've uh, actually walked to meetings today, uh, which is always faster in Manila when the traffic is what it is. So, um, but it's been uh, been good to be here. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I have fond memories of the traffic in uh, Manila lot. So um, we've got your bio in the in the show notes. Also, of course, you did uh, the episode uh, last year for the 2023 and beyond outlook. But um, can you just kind of remind listeners a little bit what the Lantau Group actually does? Sure, Joseph. Appreciate that. So you know, my background is sort of energy economics, and the Lantau Group company I co-founded, you now the managing director of, uh, is really an Asia Pacific energy economics consultancy but what what does that mean so there are three things that we do we we advise investors on commercial transactions uh, involving energy assets in the asia pacific region we do regulatory and policy related work which in the energy transition world that we live in is is quite a wide range of things you know and then we also work with end users on either their energy procurements their green credits their green procurements their tariff outlooks are what we call the sort of the grid to the customer side of the equation so fuel the grid grid the customer that's like two parts and then the, the whole regulatory energy design energy market it's been uh, it's been quite fun we've expanded over the last year quite a bit to um, include india so we're now india china korea the ASEAN countries and australia new zealand so it's uh, keeps us out of trouble well, it sounds like a very busy time anyway but is it are the, the clients mostly um corporates, governments, financial institutions? It's been quite a mix. Uh, Joseph, it's uh, it's about one-third, 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 or not by numbers, but sort of one-third of the businesses, uh, people financing projects, whether it's the 
sponsors, the proponents, or the or the financing side and both buy and sell side, mostly renewable energy, but uh, also gas gas assets, assets and um, and LNG plays. But then um, also um, on the government side, we've got regulated utilities who are still regulated in Asia or are still going through policy things, or many of them are owned by governments. And then you've got your uh, your government ministries with decarbonization, and then you've got your your tech sector and your your early movers and your RE100 companies, and you know actually you know trying to meet commitments and either advocating for change, seeking insight in about markets, or actually you know trying to structure their green their green strategies or the green portfolio. So it's a little bit of everything, mostly private sector, but a good 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 dose of of, um, of, of governments here here in Asia. That's 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 the way the way it falls. That that's that's the standard. And I, yeah. um, getting into the kind of two areas I wanted to focus on today, which is first uh, a recap of uh, you know climate business and finance in 2023 in Asia. Um, you know, based on kind of your work, what do you think are the kind of like two or three things that you've noticed? It's a, great, it's a great question, and you know, sometimes to, to me, Asia is a growing part of the world. I mean, that's obvious in in many ways. Many of the fastest growing economies, many of the largest economies in absolute sense, and all, all most diverse. So, even if there's a what you might call an event that would cause a dip, like interest rates going up or something like that, it's not always translating into a reduction in what we see in the business in Asia. And so I, I, 20, 2023 for us was a, a growth year for commercial transaction support. But I, I, my sense is that there could have been so much more if the environment hadn't been um, a little bit harder on the financing side and a little bit less unpredictable on, uh, on, the, on the policy and fuel side. Um, you know, governments here have a lot of gatekeeper aspects to the renewable energy market. Some of the markets you can't actually invest in unless there's an auction or an extra uh, a path to market. And they, a lot of preoccupation on fuel fuel disruptions and things of that sort. But generally, we saw both buy and sell transactions across the ASEAN region. We saw continuous uh, interest in Singapore's imports. Uh, we saw Growing interest in Malaysia's, um, you know, shift towards uh, more favorable green energy, which has continued into 2024. We saw offshore wind in Korea and Taiwan. Uh, we saw a little bit less in China. And it's probably a little bit of geopolitics and a little bit of re, 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 rejigging exactly what business uh, is being done and in, in, in settling out what what's happening in their their dynamic energy markets, but um, and an increasing amount of inquiries about Japan, which isn't in the market we directly cover, but it's one that we're we're kind of getting pulled into increasingly because of the interest from batteries and uh, and renewables generally. Uh, so so yeah, for us, 2023 was a growth year, and um, and I my suspicion though is it was actually a, one of the trickier years for the actual investment community, but the you know Asia is a long-term play. Yeah, I mean, I think you know the fact that you're investing in long-term assets is is key. And um, 
looking at things on a five-minute basis is not really helpful. Obviously, there are things that can disrupt the markets very, very sharply, like you know, supply chain bottlenecks, etc. But looking at the long term, obviously, you know, one would think that those supply bottlenecks, for example, would uh, would ease, and actually, in fact, they have uh, compared to COVID times, right? Looking at Asia, I mean, obviously, we can't. I think there's something like 80 countries, including the islands, you know, Pacific Islands, etc. So, if we talk about 80 countries, this podcast would be the longest podcast uh, in history. But, but focusing on just a few, you mentioned earlier Malaysia, which I kind of find interesting because, in a way, similar to the Philippines, it had a lot of uh, start and stop. So, you know, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go green. And then nothing happens. Oh, yeah, we're going to go green and then nothing happens. But you were saying that actually perhaps something is, you know, it's more of a start now or something is happening there. Yeah, I, I'm bullish on the opportunities that are there. It's been a market neglected by and large by the international renewable energy sector until more recently. A little bit more closed. There's no path to market, you know, if you think about different routes to monetization, they're relatively few and they're, they're I call them gate-kept, but, but uh, you know, Malaysia did dabble with these large-scale solar auctions and they've been moving progressively to it and they just announced day after, day before yesterday, maybe a day before that, uh, two gigawatts of solar to be done and, um, you know, I think the measure that I, which is, you know, a, a healthy step up. What's interesting about that is uh, less than a year ago, maybe eight, nine months ago, they released a, a national energy transition roadmap, which was supposed to be an energy transition roadmap. Uh, but but honestly, it was a gas roadmap for the first 10 years out to 2035. There really wasn't much solar coming in, new solar coming in until after 2035. So in that sense, it wasn't consistent with, you know, what we're seeing as the fundamental trend in, in Asia, which is where there's gas, there should be an opportunity for solar to displace it. And um, and we, 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 we argued that this is this is odd and probably isn't the way it's going to be is probably the battling out of perspectives about what Malaysia should do with its natural resources. But the, this this changed um, two days ago to, to shift to solar, which is much more than was in the roadmap even just you know eight months ago, says to me that you know at the end of the day, the fundamentals drive the bus. Um, if there's savings to be had or an opportunity, and that's really where solar is displacing expensive gas gas that could be sold to Singapore. So then it starts to make starts to make sense. And that's that's been a theme we we've 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 you know commented on a number of times. And the fundamentals don't always allow you to do a good project because the project depends on having like a commercial contracting channel or it's not always available, but it does tend to drive the longer term changes in policy, which is for Malaysia, I think very you know, they've got a reasonable solar resource. They've got a lot of land, a robust system, and they're interconnected with Singapore, and that has an appetite for for import. So, you know, there's quite a few changes in the amount of interest that we're seeing in that country. Yeah, maybe one country we can talk about is the country you're in right now, uh, Mike, the Philippines, mm -hmm. because I think that very, very sharp start, stop, start, stop kind of situation where they, you know, we're going to go to renewables, we're not going to go to renewables. And then a few months back, 
or maybe a year over a year ago, they decided to uh, lift the foreign ownership. So maybe you can talk about a little bit about those events and 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 what's happened since. So yeah, no, it's uh, it's been an interesting market, and that was a positive development. Anytime, frankly, anytime you remove you know sort of a restriction like that at a dynamic time that frees up people and capital to participate in projects more efficiently. That's, you know, pretty positive. You know, for, for me and for, for, for the Landtop Group, we, we've always seen the Philippines as one of the more dynamic markets in Asia. It does have some start, stop, start, stop, but compared to everywhere else, it has more routes to, mar- routes to market for renewable energy. You can contract directly with a customer. Uh, you You can... Uh, you know, create a retail business and enter that. You can uh, sell into the Wesson. You can participate in the periodic um, auctions. Uh, you can. There's a renewable portfolio standard. It's not super binding or anything, but there's a you know fairly, as far as things go, hospitable environment for entry or it's freer entry. And now, like you say, it's got one less restriction in terms of who who can own what. Uh, so in that sense, we've always put it forward as a as a as a as a robust, more robust market. You know, if gas is either going to be it's either imported as LNG through the new terminal, uh, or it's international linked coal prices or internationally priced um, domestic gas. Those are pretty fundamentally favorable uh, characteristics for developing onshore wind and solar. Uh, and they they were a leader in many ways in batteries uh, to bringing them in for ancillary services. But you're right. Um, you know, I think the fundamentals are stronger than what the uptake is. But um, I think there's a couple of hundred megawatts of solar at the moment, but there's two or three gigawatts that's committed now through various, uh, you know, in the pipeline through various uh, auctions. So. What we would start to see is that will start to add up quite quickly as those projects come come to um, come to market. Uh, the country is very committed to decarbonization. They're definitely exploring things like offshore wind, which which would be expensive um, relative to other things, but it, it it it's been a it's pretty been pretty advanced undertaking to take a look at the what we've been looking at the uh, the regulatory and economic framework for that. So, you know, we we hear the message that this is a strong commitment to um, to greening up. So it's um, pretty positive. If you just leave it to its own devices and you don't actually encourage renewables more, growth alone will, you know, economic growth in the Philippines has been pretty strong for quite some time. And all the projections continue to say that. So you wind up with a gas solar battery kind of dynamic on top of a declining layer of coal that just eventually uh, ages out. So, uh, you know, the gas solar is very healthy dynamic. Your gas is displaced by solar, mm-hmm. you know, so that just goes on. Uh, so, you know, anybody's in the Philippines stays here. Um, it's, you know, whether they get their project this year or next year, there's just a long runway of projects that I think will be um, will, will be done. Yeah, so it's, it's a small, a smallish economy, but it's a very consistent performer in that sense. 
You, you mentioned Singapore before. I don't know if yeah. you and, and I've and seen obviously headlines about the kind of very keen uh, a country being very keen to import uh, renewable energy. Um, can you explain a little bit of the background to that, please, Mike? And also, kind of your views on on you know whether that's some 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 experts are very skeptical. Uh, some experts uh, think that it's it, it's a great idea. Um, what, what are you? Could you spend a little bit about the background and then maybe tell us your views? Sure, Joseph. Singapore is fascinating conundrum. So you 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 have a country that really wants to lead and be decarbonized. They've written about this. They published it. They've got. There, there, there are four switches, uh, all of the points that eventually you switch on to, to decarbonize, ending with hydrogen, but beginning with uh, in-country solar, over-water solar, and then imports, um, and then eventually some mix of maybe uh, of hydrogen or maybe carbon capture, and a long-term pathway for electrification, and, and including demand increases that are are maybe driven by data centers and other things that all create a fairly demanding environment because there's no land for solar and there's no wind for wind. So everything really has to come from across the border. And it's a very tight energy security, energy adequacy, energy control system. So if you start talking about imports, you have to start thinking about the framework by which you're not just dependent on any one thing that you can have like a network of imports that uh, you can lose one and still have others. You have to think about how much you have in country. But you start doing that, the first moves down that strategy, and maybe the whole strategy itself, very expensive because you're building in all of this redundancy, you're building all of these restrictions, you're building all of these requirements so that you mm. know you can you can you can bring in gigawatts from someplace else but live without it or force that risk to the investor. To, to, to take it mm. drives the, drives the price up and then so it's doable I mean it's mechanically mechanically arithmetically it's doable mm. uh, you can import from Malaysia you can import from Indonesia you can import even from Australia uh, but uh, or, or Vietnam uh, and Laos all of these things are in play to various degrees active uh, or, or fantastic goal um, but there's a number of consortia, there's a number of groups that are looking at that. And we, 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 we look at these things. And um, as long as Singapore is committed to decarbonization, it's just money. Mm, mm. Right? And, and, and honestly, you know, one of the big pillars of the energy transition, and this is so much important for investors as well, is like it. There has to be a willingness to pay, mm, mm. right? So um, we were just talking about the Philippines. The Philippines, if it grows three, four, five percent a year, there will be opportunities to build solar and wind just to displace gas. But you're not going to be displacing all of the gas, and you're not going to be displacing mm, 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 all of the coal. You're just going to be riding the growth wave. For Singapore to take a more aggressive path and say, we're really going to go all the way. And I don't think the Philippines has even put a, a, a zero target yet. 
No. Uh, and Malaysia really hasn't put a zero target yet. But you know, Singapore's if, if Singapore tries to do it, it's going to be off the chart in terms of the cost. Um, will the commercial and industrial customers will the will they pay it? Um, and this is the you know this is the question we don't we, we think needs more attention. Um, mm. You know, I, the projects themselves are good. A couple of them are good. I'm sure they'll do some. But how how fast will it will it go? But uh, right right now they put their hand up and you know all of a sudden it's become uh, it's become really it's become really uh, interesting as a as a mover. But there is a an element of of, of, of is it really is it really going to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I I think that part is uh, uh, that that part is uh, true. I mean, one one proposal is to import wind from Vietnam to Singapore. Mm. Um, that's fine, but Vietnam also needs power. Mm. So would you build a wind, tur- wind a wind farm and then send it all the way to Singapore, or would you build a wind farm and send it into Vietnam? Because where it would be less expensive, but you would get, for less money, the same amount of renewables, <laughs> just mm-hmm. from an Earth point of view, right? So, you know, Singapore is trying to pull... Pull, pull, pull the resources to it, but you know, in Asia, everybody needs something. So it's 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 a very you know it's 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 an interesting um, interesting thing. Maybe they're a little bit too far ahead. I, from my perspective, and and please do 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 argue with me, <laughs> please. Um, it, the whole kind of Singapore effort has two, uh, if two potentially long term positive effects. One is. Uh, Finally, the build-up of some kind of some sort of ASEAN grid that I think yes. we've been talking about for 30 years, if not 40 years, um, and that would be absolutely formidable for a bunch of reasons that 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 you know. And the second one is Australia, because whereas it doesn't make a humongous amount of sense for Vietnam to export. Energy when it needs renewable energy when it's got when it needs that energy itself. Um, Australia is you know is a developed country. They've got uh, more wind and sun and, and solar resource that they need. Um, so the whole thing would make a lot of sense. But yeah. obviously, like you said, at the end of the day, it's all about the dollar per, or whatever currency per kilowatt hour to the end user. Uh, because if everybody's willing to pay you know ten thousand. U.S. dollars per kilowatt hour, then everything gets done. But uh, that's not going to happen, uh, at least not during my my lifetime or your lifetime or probably the lifetime of our kids. <laughs> but uh, I just, yeah, I just thought that those those would be, you know, fantastic triggers. I mean, that I mean, Singapore would be a fantastic trigger for those two two things to happen: the ASEAN grid and uh, Australian uh, renewable energy exports. Yeah, um, I. I Unfortunately, I won't argue on the Aston Grid one. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea whose time is come. However, the imports not necessarily all coming to create the Aston Grid. Some of them are creating like a hub and spoke, partly because the Aston Grid isn't as developed or as enabled or as third-party accessible as it should be. So what are you going to do? The, the Aston Grid isn't as accessible or enabled as it, as it should be. 
um, which creates a, a problem because if you're a developer and you want to use it or it's there and it's logical to use it, like you use a European grid or a North American, one of the North American grids, uh, do you really want to be subjected to getting uh, a wheeling charge in Thailand, a wheeling charge in Malaysia, like what they call stack of pancakes, um, where everybody lays another charge on top of it. By the time you get to Singapore, they've taken, uh, you're buying a big stack of pancakes and you're paying too much, so you just build your own line. And and then it's like, well, we've missed an opportunity to actually build out the Austrian grid people are building. So, you know, I think that, that I hope that you're right, that um, more attention is spent towards using the ASEAN grid and getting not the technical aspects of it right, but the uh, third-party access pricing, wheeling charge aspects right. I think the engineers have studied it forever. It's time for some of the economics to get right. And then on the Australian side, you know, you could argue that the resource is there. What gets exported? Electrons are molecules. And at what point? Uh, but you use the same sunlight, you use the same wind, you use the same land, and then you have to determine what is the what is the the most valuable form to export? Is it green hydrogen or is it a subsea cable carrying electrons? And I think that 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 Singapore has helped illuminate that debate a bit by 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 creating an opportunity for Sun Cable to explore the electron side of it, but then at the same time, people are talking about the hydrogen side. And one way or the other, Australia is going to be key to this. We've we talked quite a bit about uh, solar, and I think another thing that we've seen, not just in 2023, but also maybe if you, just in recent years in general, is uh, offshore wind. Yep. Um, and, and it's been kind of like a complete boom. And of course, my personal favorite story is Taiwan, where I think back in 2015 and 2016, I was writing about the potential and uh, people asked me why bother writing about such a theoretical subject. And three or four years later, it became quite booming. So pat on the back for me, a rare, rare pat, pat on the back for me. But uh, but talking about offshore wind, what, what did you see in uh, 2023? Yeah, we... Uh, thanks, Joseph. It's, it's, it's a good, it's a good question. And offshore wind is one of these things where there's there's a strong constituency stakeholder group, group of companies, group of expertise that looks at Taiwan, Japan, Korea, and China. But but I think most of the commercial activities so far have been Taiwan and Korea and. and Progressively, Japan. Um, you know, the wind is there. Um, the renewable energy appetite for reducing reliance on expensive gas is there. Um, the question is, can you get offshore wind to the price point that you know can be done on the North Sea? Because mm. um, if you can, then it's 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 good. Um, and, you know, we're, you know, we're looking at this in the, in the Philippines where the wind is not quite as good and it's the, the sea bed's not quite as friendly. Um, so there's a lot more uncertainty. Um, but 
uh, it could be quite a higher cost. But the key part of this is if you're going to go to decarbonization all the way, you need a, a, a larger scalable resource like offshore wind in many countries in order to make the equation kind of close to get to zero. So it's a matter of do you do it now or do you do it 10 years from now? It's like it's not a question of whether, it's a question of when. Mm. Um, and um, and for markets like Korea, you know, they're, they're struggling. Kepco's financials are, 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 are dreadful. The fuel cost changes, gas and coal have really hit the country mm. really mm. hard. Mm. Um, you know, if you could turn more of the power into fixed price, stable, non-fuel sensitive, you know, there's a premium that people will pay for certainty for for, mm-hmm. for, for, for de-risking that. And I think one of the things that come out of the uh, fuel disruptions of recent um, years is, is people are looking at that and saying, well, you know, maybe we'll do it. Um, certainly our, our, our business, we're looking at offshore wind and rec prices. You know, it's like those things go, go together. What, 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 are the, what is the rec value? That goes with the uh, with with the, with the electrons, so that we can figure out whether we're selling the two things separately or bundled, and how they think about the projects. That that that's we've just done a continuous stream of that work in 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 Korea, and and you know the projects keep on coming. So I, I think that's real. Uh, Philippines will wait and see uh, whether that happens. The government's been very bullish on developing their offshore wind capability in their runway with um, tens of tens of gigawatts identified as 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 uh, as desirable and maybe even economic you know later in the 2030s decade but here in 2024 it's still a little bit too early to call the interesting thing about this um, east asia specifically korea japan taiwan is the end user Price now. These numbers are a little bit dated, but the last time I looked at it, which was a while back, the Japanese consumer on average was paying twice as much for electricity as a Korean consumer or a Taiwanese consumer. So does that mean that there's a bit more potential for kind of short-term potential for offshore wind in Japan relative to those two other countries? Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, the fact that the end user is paying different amount doesn't mean that electricity costs different. And, mm. um, and in that sense, um, or that the avoidable cost when you bring in offshore wind would be that different. Both Japan and Korea uh, depend on imported LNG. So right off the bat, that's something they they share mm. in, in, in common, and the cost of that is pretty much identical. Uh, and then you um, then you get into what is the you know how much capacity value do you get from wind? When does the wind blow? How much can you mm. rely on? Uh, do you, and then how much stabilization can you bring to your your tariffs um, by uh, by removing some of the volatility uh, from it? And both countries have the same issues. Now, Korea has lower prices, particularly for domestic customers. The government's raised the industrial customer price, I think, four times in the last year or so. Hmm. Uh, 
quite dramatically, but with elections coming, haven't really touched the domestic customer. Mm, 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 mm. Right, Kepco doesn't make any money. I think if you could you could create something where Kepco lost less money by 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 reducing fuel costs or something, that would be attractive. That that may not quite be offshore wind, but it it, it you know Korea doesn't have you know has a has a tougher topology for 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 um, for, for solar. So. Um, I think that's that's the grappling point. Both both countries have very similar cost structures when it comes right down mm-hmm. to it. They have different mm-hmm. tariff structures. Uh, the Japanese customer pretty much pays the full cost of service, mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. Korea they they, they don't. Um, but the value of renewables as a as a portfolio addition or a stabilizing addition is actually quite high in both countries, and I think that's why we're seeing more and more deals and. Um, you know, a lot of the tech sector is based, you know, derives from support from both of those countries. So there's a huge RE100 type mandate. So at that at mm-hmm. that level, uh, there's a lot of advocacy for trying to get the best access arrangements and um, and and to try to open things up a little bit. Um, so uh, you know, it's uh, I think that's why the activity of both of those is growing. Is that it, it? It has to. Same with Taiwan. Um, imported LNG, uh, moving away from coal, um, a limit to what you can do in solar, some decent wind offshore, uh, appetite by by large companies like you know TSMC and others for green green power and a good enough offshore wind resource that it can come in at a not unreasonable mm. price. So you know it's very alluring. Mm-hmm. Expect to see more. Um, one last um, place uh, in our uh, climate, business, and finance visit of Asia is is China. Now, I know that currently, uh, you know, business-wise, you know, the focus is on some other countries. But I do know that you recently wrote some analysis on what is going on um, in China. Could you just very briefly, and, and we also saw some record numbers in terms of solar installations and wind installation in 2023, despite everything else that is going on, you know, the property crisis, et cetera. So um, any just um, quick thoughts on on China? Yeah, um, China's solar business alone is on a scale that is, I don't know that any other country comes close to replicating it. Just massive. And China's sector reforms, opening up, changing the risk profiles everybody's exposed to, creating spot markets in many provinces, in in exposure in many provinces, and then creating or shifting to new green instruments, but doing so quickly and before people really understood what they were or whether they were necessary or how stable they were relative to what they were used to, like IREX or something. This all happened so quickly. So what we what we saw is sort of the external world, the sort of the outside world inbound, sort of dried up. We didn't do that as much work on the um, sort of IPP side. But the end user side, you know, seeing more risk exposure and more opportunities. We we saw a growth in our um, 
large customers um, understanding China, trying to decide what priority to attach to China, make mostly not so much green strategies, but making sure that they weren't going to get caught out with a supply disruption or a unexpected price volatility because they didn't sign up for the right contract and somehow got thrown into the spot market. Um, we help bridge a lot of communications between local teams and international headquarters, kind of providing a sounding board for, for both because um, historically this wasn't a conversation that was frequently had. The Chinese power sector was much more regulated. And so I, very few companies have have um, the same kind of electricity market uh, trading capabilities and all that in, in, in country. And a lot of the headquarters are, are, are used to this in Europe and in the U.S., but not always know how to communicate. So that that's really been a, a large part of it, Joseph. But what we've started to see at the end of the year and now the beginning of this year is uh, more interest in the behind-the-meter solar a rooftop business by international investors, I think partly because they can try to build a portfolio of, of, of multinational uh, roofs and, and CNI roofs, roofs. And so it's like the market's kind of divided that way. But with all the reforms, um, there are new risks to that. And so that's keeping us busy, um, you know, sorting out how stable are tariffs, uh, how, how, how exposed are tariffs to spot markets and time of use pricing, and things of that sort. So it's, you know, the China business has just become a lot more end user, a lot more nuanced compared to, say, the ASEAN businesses, which is still very much grid-based projects. Mm. Um, you know, uh, but for, for China, it's been basically uh, large customer exposure uh, behind the meter business. Uh, very interesting dichotomy. Fantastic. Um, just moving on to kind of the second part very, very briefly, is the climate finance and business outlook for 2024. I mean, do you have any particular themes yeah. that you're looking at or events that you're looking at? I mean, I think you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, all things being equal, 2024 and, and maybe even 2025 could be even a lot more stronger than uh, 2023 and 2022. So um, any kind of major, major events are you looking at for 2024 and beyond? Yeah, um you know, I, it, it probably isn't major event-driven. More like the dust settles, the coal, coal and gas prices have come down a little bit. Government policies have gone from panic mode to you now back to decarbonization. In 2024, um, we're getting deeper in. Uh, people are moving still away from coal. Um, you know, I think what we're, where we're just saying the policy side of decarbonization pick up whether it's the Philippines on their offshore wind interest or Malaysia with their energy transition, but now they're, they're, they're progressively pivoting even further to solar. You know, what we talked about Singapore, you can talk about Thailand, they're all, they're all, it, it, Vietnam has energy security issues, but a lot of that relates to an uncomfortable exposure to higher cost LNG. Do you really want to buy? How much do you want to buy? I've taken Vietnam a really long time you know, to close deals on LNG. But 
you know, terminals and units have been committed for ages, and but actually signing a contracts have been, and you know, because they're always a bit more expensive than they want it to be, and mm. you know, it's, but 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 this is the thing that re- that drives renewables is it sets a fixed price, displaces those most expensive fuels. So at some point, all of these things become a harmonious theme. So like I said, when we run our our models, you know, silly though they may be, and all of that, they like they, they keep pointing that everybody's estimates of solar batteries and maybe onshore wind, from a fundamentals point of view, looking out, have been low. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, models will sometimes put batteries in later on fundamental basis, but actually, what happens is the solar comes in faster because of a mix of fundamentals and preferences and policies and then that creates and destabilizes systems creates you know price dips in a day and creates opportunities for batteries for ancillary services so suddenly the thing that the model said was going to happen in 2035 is happening in 2025 Hmm. because it doesn't take that much to tip this forward it doesn't take that much for you know one gigawatt sooner or something so everything that we're seeing is that we're still in an era where all green outlooks get revised upward uh, every year. Um, we haven't hit the ceiling yet. So that's very exciting because that's a lot of commercial opportunity. Um, it's a lot of people who have been investing time and money to get their positions. And I think 2024, 2025, we'll see a lot of projects coming in from the auctions of the past couple of years. And some things were delayed. We'll see an increase in policy support to drive things. Uh, we'll see a lot of companies with portfolios that they've carefully constructed go on the market and, and swap their stakes. Or so we've we've seen an increase in sell side activity. So we're really bullish on 2024. Uh, you know, for that from that point of view, you know, in, in the in the role that we play. But from a pure renewables and a you know number of projects activity and. And stakeholders' point of view, um, you know, everybody's here now. And 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 I think one one key thing, well, at least one 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 of the many key things that you said said was uh, about the cost of the equipment, because the LCOE for a lot of the more kind of standard or proven technologies, namely solar and onshore wind. That's still coming down, coming down quite a lot. And with the gigawatt numbers rising and potentially exceeding forecasts, that bodes well for the you know, price of the equipment, which is going to come down. So, and as the, the price comes down, then you know it's more attractive, etc. Gives more room for battery, etc., etc. Right? Yeah. yeah. So no, it's, 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 it's a really strong virtuous circle, and. It, it starts happening faster and starts surprising people. And then people say, oh, my goodness, what does this mean? Maybe it's happening faster. And then it's, it's like, well, maybe we're going to build another gas plant. And i got nothing wrong with gas. We need to keep the lights on. There's lots of invaluable things that electricity provides. We are not ready for 100% green energy today. But you build a new power station, you want 20, 25 years to recover your money. Mm. You know, At some point, it's the back end that starts getting riskier that fog 
doesn't lift all the way to the end. And suddenly you need your money back faster. And if you need your money back in 15 years versus 25 years, just to be sure, or people are only offering you 10-year financing or 15-year contracts, then you've got to decide what kind of world you are at the end. And you know, people are thinking, well, it's going to be hydrogen. It's going to be hydrogen. It's going to be hydrogen. That's true. But will it be as much hydrogen as you think? Uh, or will it be enough hydrogen or enough biofuel or enough something to be flexible? And you know, will that bring even more? I, I, what we're seeing, I think, is more which countries will actually run out of solar resource. Mm. You know, those will be the ones. And that's still a little too early for excitement in 2024. But I, I think that Anybody who's looking at the longer term, the sort of net zero strategies, whether it's 2050, 2060, 2070, you know, have to be asking, there isn't enough solar and onshore wind, even with batteries, to do all of this. So, you know, there will be a back end. It just hasn't happened yet. So it's very going to be a wild ride. That, that, that's, that much is true. One final question, and perhaps the, the toughest one. So you mentioned earlier that... Uh, in 2024 and beyond, you're going to see an acceleration in terms of investments in, in the more mainstream renewables, solar, onshore wind. Um, offshore wind will probably still grow quite, quite a bit. We're going to see policy, decarbonization-related policies and government support also increasing exponentially. But what about um, grids? Do, do you think that all of this is going to push governments such as you know Malaysia such as the Philippines and others to kind of upgrade and expand the grids you know putting putting real money be, be behind that or is yep. that still just too complicated oh it's it, 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 it's the answer to both of those questions is yes yes it's too complicated and yes it's too complicated and yes there's going to be a lot of money spent uh, Will it be smartly spent? Um, mm. And here, here, here is where I, I, I do worry a little bit that um, the case for building out the grid, which is partly about making things smarter, but partly it is fear of whatever it means to not be ready and maybe have curtailment or maybe uh, something that sounds to the layperson as maybe the lights won't go on or will go off. Uh, but so you can spend a lot of money building out the grid, as you know, and if you don't get more kilowatt hours, all that money is incremental to your current tariff. Right? The mm. tariff is cost per kilowatt hour. You know, at the end of the day, cost per kilowatt, cost per kilowatt hour, but at the end of the day, it's spread out over units of some sort. So if those units aren't growing, but you're adding grid, your costs are going up. So it's really about being smart about timing and smart about, you know, not not letting the utility just smarten things up or build things up just because they've seen somebody do this in another country. It needs to be a carefully aligned policy with with what is actually going on in the renewables, what's actually going on with demand growth, what's actually other, otherwise it can be quite an expensive uh, hobby to build out grid you actually aren't using, mm, mm, but mm. that you built it so that you'll be able to use it in full 15 years from now. 
So this is this is uh, this is one of my little pet pet projects. Is kind of go around and just ask sort of the sort of little tougher questions of like, are, are we, have we got the plan that really supports the plan? Mm, um, mm, mm, you know, uh, so of course it has to be done, but what order you do it really determines what people are paying, and I, I think that part of the equation gets undercooked sometimes, Joseph. Fantastic, Mike. Any kind of final conclusions or takeaways from our conversation today? Well, like I, I think we both sort of allude to both by the questions and, and, and sort of even the general tone or generic nature of some of my answers. And you get specific, and you, you know, I, I tend to get specific when there's like only something specific to talk about. But we're really talking about a a step change and a wave, and and there are little disruptions that slow things down. But um, by by and large, most of the things that we see when you look across the region is the countries are starting to level up, so to speak, in terms of their attention to renewable energy. Um, they're starting to to create policy frameworks for supportive things that have that weren't there two years ago. We just talked about last year and now action. So, you know, I, I feel like this is this is a nice part of the sort of S-curve where we're starting to escalate some of this. Um, these systems can accommodate a lot more renewable energy before they get bogged down in curtailment and, and, and a lot of the complexity. You know, we're not even at 10 or 20 percent renewables in some of these markets. So. There's a long runway is what I'm thinking, Joseph. I think this is a good time to be here. Fantastic. And uh, I do share your uh, cautiously bu bullish thoughts <laughs> and view. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. I know you must be exhausted with all the travels uh, and I'm glad I caught you. Uh, tonight. And um, again, thank you very, very much for participating in the Asian Climate Finance Podcast. Thanks, Joseph. Always a pleasure. Best of luck to you and uh, keep well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Asia Climate Finance Podcast. Please note that the Asia Climate Finance Podcast is presented for educational purposes only. All information in the podcast must not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. Also please note that the views and opinions expressed by our guests are personal and may not represent the views and opinions of current or previous employers. Music